We'll see if this thing picks up through my beard. I'm not sure if it will. I thought about clipping it to my beard. I might get a little bit closer. <clears throat> All right. Um, I'd like for you guys to uh, turn to Mark 8, verses 34. And uh, while you guys are, are turning there, um, I want to sort of, uh, I want you guys to think with me for a second. I want you to picture this in your mind, that a young, broken-hearted teenage girl who sits in her room and she's crying. She's just felt the cruel, unforgiving hand of life. And she's desperately looking forward to a day when her knight in her shining armor, in his shining armor, comes, rides in, and takes her hand in marriage. And she says, Oh, then it will all be better. He will never do anything to hurt me. We will never fight. He will always think of my needs before his own. He'll spend hours just talking with me about his day and about life. And life won't be able to touch us. So I want you guys to think, because sometimes realities don't meet our expectations, right? Because the reality is marriage is hard. There are fights, and there's bills, and there's debts, and there's broken hearts. And so, likewise, I want you to think, before we read this, I want you to think of the Israelites. They've been crying. They've been looking forward and longing and hoping and dreaming for this triumphant Messiah, this King to come in, to destroy their enemies, to wipe out the Roman oppression, and to establish them, the Jews, God's chosen people, to establish them in power and authority. But their anticipation is about to meet reality. So turn with me in uh, Mark 34, and um, let's, let's read this, 34 through 38. And calling the crowds to him, And his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me And my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray. God, uh, we come before you today and I pray that you would have mercy on me, a sinner who is about to proclaim your word uh, to himself and to the people, your people. God, I pray that in your mercy and in your grace that you would give us hearts to hear and minds to understand what your word says, not what my mouth says, but what your word says. And God, we we say all the time that we believe in in God's word alone and scripture alone. And God, I confess to you today that out of my insufficiency, I plead your word alone, God, is not me. And I pray that that would be the cry of our hearts where we learn what you have for us, where we learn the calling to follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
I want to sort of set up some context uh, first. So, um, first, Mark sort of sets up this quote from Isaiah, um, talking about the coming of the Messiah and John the Baptist. And then there's the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. We've, we've preached through these. Josh has been rolling through them. So, it's, I like this. You all sort of know where we've been. Um, and then finally, Jesus foretells of his resurrection, and that's here in Mark 8. And so what, is Mark, what has Mark been doing? Mark's displaying that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And so it's all culminating into Jesus' massive following. He's got crowds behind him, disciples behind him. They're flocking. He can't be hidden. We talk, we've seen that last week, how he cannot be hidden. And so it's, it finally culminates in, in Peter's confession here in chapter 8, where he says, uh, who do you think that I am? Peter confesses, oh, you are the Messiah, you are the Christ. And then he proceeds to tell them, yes, and the Christ must suffer, and the Christ must die. And so Jesus is redefining what the Messiah looks like. Things of this man, verse, sorry, things of man versus things of God. We see that in, in verse 33 just before this. And so tonight, I want to look at what it means to follow Christ, specifically by seeing three things, the cost of Christ, the profit of man, and the cost of Christianity. So let's look here in verse 34. And calling the crowd to himself with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Deny the self. In other words, to set ourselves aside. And so the question here is, what does the self desire? What satisfies us in our life, in this life? Well, there's wealth, there's, there's power, there's authority, there's comfort. You know, a lot of people want that authority. We see that in people seeking promotions, seeking being their own boss. Everybody wants to do that. Nobody wants to be told what to do, but everybody wants to tell what to do. We see that in comfort. Everybody strives to be in a nice home with plenty of resources to pay bills, and, and, and people want to be in a place that, in, in life where they feel comfort. They want what will please, we want what will please us. And so what do the disciples want here? So he's talking to the disciples. He just got done talking with Peter. And so what are they longing for? What do they want? They might not want wealth and power and things like that or comfort because they're on the move. They don't really carry money. But be certain that they do want an authoritative or successful Messiah. That's what they're longing for. They're longing for their king to come in on his horse. And so Peter gives us a clear example of this in verse 32. So jump just up a little bit. It says, and he said this plainly to them, talking about his suffering and his death and his resurrection. And he, and he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he, Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So this famous scene here that we all see. And so on a side note, everybody sort of thinks that Peter is this, oh, bless his heart guy. And the poor guy gets such a bad rap. But the reality is, is he's just like us. If you've been longing for a Messiah this whole time, and you're just getting this massive following, you're just being successful, you're, you're feeding thousands, crowds are everywhere searching for you. And then he says, no, and now I'm going to suffer and die. 
And so we always sort of chalk Peter up to, oh, bless his heart. He didn't get it. Well, neither, neither would we. And so that's the reality of it here. And so I want us to see that our desires are clearest. This is sort of a side note. Um, that our desires are clearest even in our marriages, right? Especially early on. The honeymoon ends. Reality sets in. And desires conflict, right? I want you to respect me more. Well, I want you to spend more time with me. These are the things that we want. It's I want and I want, and those don't line up. And so early on in marriage, and even still today, the biggest lesson that I need to learn is, is how to shelf my desires, right? That's, how we, that's really the, the biggest tip you get going into marriage is learn to say I'm sorry and learn to keep your mouth shut. That's like the two biggest things you learn, right? And so we see that early on, and so it is with our eternal marriage with Jesus, our Messiah, as the church. And Christ is calling the crowds and us to lay down what we desire the most. And so, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, let him lay down his desire to retire at 50 and move to South Florida and play golf five days a week. Let him lay that aside. If anyone would come after me, let her set aside her longing to meet that perfect man who will make her life complete, who will fill her with joy and love. Let her set that aside. Let her take up her cross. Let him take up his cross and follow Christ. But the funny note here is that the crucifixion hasn't taken place yet, right? We're smack dab in the middle of the gospel the Gospel of Mark, and the crucifixion hasn't taken place, and so the cross does not symbolize hope and salvation like it does today. The cross is not an icon around the disciples' neck yet. It's not a symbol for God's people to meet. So what does the cross symbolize? It's the opposite of that. When he says, take up your cross if you want to follow me, the cross symbolizes immense in public embarrassment, scoffing, shame, total failure, and the most gruesome of deaths. That's what the cross symbolizes. It's not hope. It's not salvation. It's embarrassment. And to the world, the cross was the opposite of success. To the Jews, it is the opposite of success. It's total failure. Especially to the Jews, it represents Roman authority. And so what is Jesus telling them to do in verse 34? He's telling them to take up their cross, take up that, that horrible image, and follow him. And so I want you to look in verse 31 really fast. It says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So he's telling them to give up what they desire the most in this life and to follow Christ to death. In verse 34, I mean, more than that, really. Look here, he's saying, um, he's saying, take up your cross. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So more than just what they desire most, if you're going to call yourself a believer, if you're going to follow me, in order to follow me, you must follow me to death. How absurd. That's crazy. That's so, that doesn't make sense. 
And so we're about to elect our president. How would that work for a campaign slogan? Hi, I'm Donald Trump. Follow me to embarrassment and shame. Well, <laughs> follow me to embarrassment and shame and follow me to death and there you will find life. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't work. That's not successful. Jesus' life and his Messiahship were completely countercultural. We see that, look in here in verse 35. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. It's easy to follow a Messiahship or a Messiah whose ministry is easy. It's easy to place your faith in a Savior who offers you healing, who offers you free food by the thousands, who offers you the ability to walk on water. It's easy. Ask the disciples. Ask the crowds following him. It's easy to follow him. They have healing. They have meals. They see miracles. It's easy to devote your life to a God who offers you material wealth. Just ask Lakewood Church in Houston, Texas. It's easy to offer your life when you think that this is going to better it here and now. When there's gain to be had here, it's easy. That's why hordes of people fill football stadiums to hear a man preach that you will be successful here and now because of this Messiah. Or maybe, let's think about it this way, maybe it's easy to call yourself a follower of Christ when being here on Sunday frees you to do whatever you want Monday through Saturday. And that's easy to sort of hear and dismiss, but that's the reality of many people sitting in the pews, and oftentimes, unfortunately, that's the reality in my heart, that being here gives me peace of mind to live how I want, to live in a manner that is so dark, that is so hard to the gospel, that is so unmoved by the glories of God's grace. But it's okay. I can cheat on my wife. I can fill in the blank and be here on Sunday because I feel better about it. That's how I sleep at night. But the reality is, is that's not the Christ in God's word. It's not. It is not Jesus Christ. Whoever seeks those things, the Bible says, will lose their life. It's serious. That's why God's word and evangelism are so important. Because here in God's word is the source of life. Here is the truth. The eternal truth. But whoever sets aside all that this life has to offer and takes up the suffering and the shame and the ministry of Jesus finds life and in the death of Christ finds eternal life. Verse 36. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus appeals to the crowds and to the disciples. He's appealing to them. What is the gain of following the things of man? What will that get you? Jesus answers them, really, in this life, it's actually pretty good. In this life, he says, you'll gain, you can gain the whole world. It's all there. 
Strive for it. Go. But at what cost? And so, yes, people can promise all the riches to follow Christ, and you can strive after those things. You can strive after the American dream. But at what cost? He says, it's our soul. And know this, the soul is not fooled, especially as I hear tragedies of suicide and how, how much that hurts, how, how painful that is for families. The reality of it is because is our soul is not fooled by the things that we tell it to be satisfied by. It's not fooled. It knows what it needs. It knows what it's longing for, and it's Christ. Christ is not found here in material things. Your best life now comes at the cost of your soul. Let me rephrase that. The pursuit of our best life now has already cost us our soul. I want you to know that. Think with me to Adam and Eve. Let's think about this. In the the majestic fields of Eden's garden, living in the glory in the midst of God, unhindered by sin... What a beautiful thing. And they're hit head on with the choice. God or self-glory. Adam and Eve chose the self and they forfeited their souls forever. And they severed relationship with God and man. And now, 2,000 years later, we are faced with the same question, but we've already made our choice. It's already been made. You and me, like Adam, we've chosen the things of man. We chose self-glorifying sin rather than the things of God. And Jesus tells us that we've lost our souls. And there's nothing we can do to gain it back. There's nothing we can offer to gain it back. And so this is not the politically correct Jesus. This is not the warm feels and the good vibes, the kumbaya Jesus. This is a you have forfeited your soul in pursuing the things of this world and the things of man, and you cannot buy it back. It's that Jesus. And we wonder why churches are so shy of the gospel. It's because it's offensive. That's why. No amount of wealth or money or power or social status can reclaim what you've lost. Let's be more specific. No amount of religion, no amount of church attendance, Sunday night or Sunday morning, no amount of football teams that we feed, no amount of seminary degrees that I earn, none of them will add up to the debt that we owe on our soul. We are spiritually bankrupt. That's our reality. That's our situation. And so to drive you to despair even more, look at this passage of this verse of warning in verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of his Father, with the holy angels. So what? Why? That's what I want you guys as listeners to be asking that's what I want you to be asking when Josh is preached in your mind. So what? Why? Why does this matter? 
And so Christ is answering that question with this stern warning. To live for self is to live, or to live in our spiritually bankrupt state is to live ashamed of Jesus. It's easy to see just how sinful this adulterous generation is. It presents itself as that. One, one look around and we see it. We see gross injustices against human babies. We see the destruction of value of marriages. We see widespread racial violence in our country. It's easy to see all of that and know how dark our world is. But it's much, much harder to see that it's penetrated our hearts. It's penetrated my heart. And in the shadow of this world, it gets harder and harder to see that we have jeopardized our joyful boldness of the gospel in our workplace. How often are you, like we learned about today, how often are you zealous to present what Christ has done in your life to people that you are are surrounded with? For me, it's not that often. How often are we eager to share the gospel with people that we know don't know that? And how slowly we've subtracted the reading of God's word and prayer with our families. Do you all ever read in your households anymore? Do I ever do that? Am I encouraging my wife to read together with me, to pray with me, to pray for her, have her pray for me, to make a home where the gospel and God's word is the center of our home? And so he says that we have become ashamed of him in this darkness. And so it says that he will be ashamed of us. And so now what? Christ proclaims that he's coming again and not in a suffering Messiahship, but in the glory and reward of his Father. And so I want us to now consider again the cost and the charge of Christ. So look at verse 34 again. And and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if any woman come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And so, brothers and sisters, so Joseph, follow Christ in his death. Die to yourself and your desires. Be united with Christ and his death. Because there and only there are we united with him in his life. I'm going to say that again. Brothers and sisters, be united with Christ in his death. So why are we doing this? Why does this passage matter? Because he's saying be united in his death. Follow him to that, to the the cross, the emblem of embarrassment and shame. Follow him there. Because only there and at the death of Christ will we be united with him in his life. You cannot be united with him in his life if you're holding on to yours. And so what does this look like to live out? It looks like living an open life of repentance and confession at home. Jessica, I'm so sorry for smarting off to you the other day. Jesus has called me to be loving, more loving than that. So will you forgive me? Parents, it looks like confessing to your kids and apologizing to them. Or it looks like not lying or cheating or bad-mouthing at work to get ahead. It looks like being a follower of Christ 
that you're not going to choose the rewards of this life, but you're going to choose Christ. And so, if you've been united with Christ in his death in the gospel, then live unashamed of his death in his gospel. It's that simple. But yet it's so hard, isn't it, to truly live unashamed of the gospel and Christ's death. And so I started with an illustration of marriage, and I want to return there again. I want to read you guys a, a quote from Martin Luther and for band members and other people that have already heard me talk about this. I'm sorry, but it's such a great quote, and I want to read it again. <clears throat> so this is talking about the unity of us with Christ in marriage. He says, The third incomparable benefit of faith is Christ, or faith in Christ, is that he unites the soul with Christ as a bride is united with her bridegroom. By this mystery, as the apostles taught, Christ and the soul become one flesh. And if they are one flesh, then there is between them a true marriage, indeed the most perfect of all marriages. Since human marriages are but poor examples of this one true marriage, it follows that everything they have, they hold in common, the good as well as the evil. Accordingly, the believing soul can boast of and glory in whatever Christ has as though, as though it were its own. And whatever the soul has, Christ claims as his own. Let us compare these and we shall see the unimaginable benefits. Christ is full of grace and life and salvation. And the soul is full of sins and death and damnation. And now let faith come between them. And our sins, our death, and our damnation become Christ, while His grace and His life and His salvation will be ours. For if Christ is a bridegroom, He must take upon Himself the things which are His bride's, and He must bestow upon her the things that are His. If He gives her His body, His very self, how shall He not give her the things that are his. And if he takes the body of the bride, how shall he not take all that is hers? Do you all see that? It's called the beautiful exchange. It's often referred to, as you know, we, we talk about marriage as the true marriage between Christ and the church, his bride. And so we sort of see that in our day-to-day -day realities. But I want you all to see it grounded in that. In the same way that when you got married, everything that was your spouse's became yours. And everything that was yours became your spouse's, for good or bad. Whatever car payments or debts or mortgages or things you had on your record suddenly became theirs and vice versa. And that's the same thing that happens in our marriage when we are united with Christ. All that your soul has done to rebel against God, he freely took and gave you all that is his. And so, Christian, the paradox here is that if we are truly united with Christ in his death and united with him in his suffering, we join in that, then rejoice, because that means that we are united with him in his life. We are united with him in his salvation. That's so great. That's so amazing. We, we couldn't bring anything other than debt to God. But Christ freely took it. And he freely bestowed upon us 
the riches of His love and His mercy and the fullness of salvation. What a glorious truth. And so this passage has, is filled with warnings. And he's showing them what they thought was the Messiahship. And he's saying, no, it, it actually points to, to death and suffering. And to follow me, you must go with me. And he's turning the world upside down. But it's such a glorious reality when we see what that death and what that suffering has done and what it has accomplished for our souls. And so, to close, set aside you set aside yourself and follow Christ. We sing that song, even in my death I will follow you. Would that be our prayer tonight? That God, I pray that at the death of myself, in the unity of your death on a cross, God, I have nothing to give because there we receive the life that Christ offers. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for being the Messiah that we did not expect, for being the perfect Savior who suffered in our place, God. And so now you're calling us to follow you and what that really means. And yes, in this life, if we have You, we do have joy and we have happiness because you hold eternity and you hold us in it. But God, that means that we must follow you and live unashamed of the gospel, even if that demands our lives here and now, God. I pray that our church would be a church that would willingly give up all that this life has to follow after you and humbly seek you in the hardest of times and in the best of times. God, you are faithful. The work of Christ stands as our bold assurance that we have salvation in him. And so, God, in in faith and in trust, we lift you up and we confess that we need you. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.